Hello, everyone, and welcome back to As We Like It, your favorite podcast where we watch and discuss and analyze movies based on or interpretations of the works of William Shakespeare. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And today we are talking about 2015's Macbeth, starring Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, directed by Justin Curzel, and written by, well, William Shakespeare, obviously, adapted by Todd Luizzo. And this is the the most up to date uh, film, I guess that that we've done, isn't it? I mean, hot off the uh, presses, TV as it presses? were. Presses, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. made it to North America in the last couple of months, last month. Yeah, I guess. yeah. So yeah, that's so. kind of exciting that we're sort of in the moment, almost current. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say, it felt the most up to date of the movies we watched. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've we definitely watched some that take Shakespeare and place it in a more modern idiom. In this movie did not do that but in the way that it was shot it was edited yeah. it was visually presented it was very contemporary yes yeah and it's mood and uh some of the stuff that i want to talk about in terms of its interpretation of heroes and stuff like that very much of now of the yeah. of the moment yeah absolutely i agree all right so right off the bat what are you what are your first impressions i didn't love it i thought it was interesting but i didn't t- love watching it <laughs> I'll leave it at that for a moment I like the way you phrased that yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to decide if if my reaction to it is has to do with the the film or the play mm. um, but I I felt you know somewhat similar to you that that I thought it was really interesting um, but I'm not sure I really was passionate about it and i don't think i'm really passionate about this play well i'm glad to hear you say both of those things because i agree with both of them as well (laughs) because as i was watching it i just found that it wasn't particularly engaging Mm -hmm. Mm. and i was thinking back to ron which i found insanely engaging and thinking back to then king lear versus macbeth and i've never to be honest i've never really found macbeth quite that engaging yeah Okay, so let me be the other voice on that. I love Macbeth. I love yeah, it as we, a play. I've always okay. loved it as a play. I mean, partly because it's one of the ones I did in high school and, you know, they kind of settled in my mind uh, strongly. But I love Macbeth and I didn't love the movie. So, you know, that's a different... And I don't love King Lear hmm. um, as, a, as a play. I find it... A, it's a good play, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shakespeare glad that I would give it that approval. It's a good play. So how is King Lear too nihilistic, but Macbeth is not? Oh, well, okay. I'll put that more. I'll answer that, though. That's not actually the reason why I like one over the other. Uh, Macbeth isn't, I don't think, nihilistic because it's very personal and it's very mm. um, individual and human. And the motivations are, uh, and then at the end, it's fixed. Lear, yeah. I mean, I know Lear is technically fixed at the end, but nobody you've, nobody, the, the people who are punished didn't do anything wrong. Too many of the people, whereas at the end of Macbeth, he's killed bad, he's killed good people. But at the end, the bad people get what what's coming to mm. them and the good people take over. The, one of the, I think, criticisms of the play is that it's not sufficiently motivated well, uh, yes, and I could, I, I can see that. And, but... and part of the reason to that, for that, may be that it there are textual issues with the play, yeah. so that there may be something missing. But I'll say that the reason I love Macbeth isn't either of those things. Actually, hmm. um, it's it's the language, and hmm. I think that's what I'm going to come back to when we talk about the movie. But there's for me, great lines. Yeah, yeah. For me, Shakespeare, all of Shakespeare, and the reason I love Shakespeare is the language. Um, and I love that there are just wonderful passages and wonderful lines in Macbeth. Not to say that there isn't in Lear, and maybe I just haven't read Lear, you know, mm. under the right circumstances enough times and everything. But I just, uh, I hear the music of Macbeth better than I hear the music of Lear. So it's always stuck with me more. Well, and with regards to kind of the the, the lyricism of it, that's what most of my comments are, because mm-hmm. I've actually never seen... Macbeth performed mm-hmm. um, I you know I read it in high school I read it most recently in October it was our Halloween selection for my book club right 
Um, but I've never actually been Watched able it. to go to a, a theatrical production of it. So, you know, typically when you see movies, they're going to be stylized in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, the the Captain Picard. Oh, my God. What is his name? <laughs> Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> yes. That production, which is kind of more modern in its setting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I appreciated about this production is that certain moments, I, I'm not going to say the entire thing, felt kind of more uh, thespian in delivery, but certain moments certainly did. Mm-hmm. And things caught my ear and I'm like, oh yeah, that is Macbeth mm-hmm. where I was so familiar with a quote from another source mm-hmm. that I, I kind of had forgotten. It was like, it was a nice awakening to like mm-hmm. hear it uh, presented that way. Mm-hmm. But I think this gets along or this, this, this goes into my main problem with the movie is that it felt very meditative mm-hmm. yes. and yeah. it felt like the characters weren't talking to each other. They were just talking. And that can work a lot more effectively in a theater than it can in a cinema. Mm -hmm. Very bluntly, I couldn't hear what they said too often. And I mean, I know that's a middle-aged thing to say, but like we had the sound up. whispering a lot. I can hear the sounds, but I couldn't hear the words. And it's not their elocution, but it was all that half whisper. It was very interior. And... Um, like interior in terms of, as you say, speaking to themselves, not speaking out. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I didn't hear the lines. And given that my, uh, you know, love for this play lies so much in its, its words and the sound yeah, and the I rhythms agree. of its words, I was, so half the time I didn't hear the line that I was, I wanted to hear until it had gone by, and I thought, mm-hmm. oh, he must have said it. Oh, yeah, I guess he did. And frustrated me a lot (laughs) yeah i mean what's strong about macbeth as a play is indeed its poetry Mm -hmm. um and so if you have a production that doesn't revel in that poetry Mm -hmm. um there's you you start to notice the the problem the weaknesses Mm -hmm. in the play itself and the plot and so Mm -hmm. forth and in in that it's just so thin i mean Mm -hmm. it's it's one of shakespeare's shortest plays and um yeah, there's a lot of action, a lot of things, a happen lot of things it, happening, but, but they just kind of happen yeah. because they're the next thing to happen. And because obviously that has to happen so that, you know, Donald Bain and Malcolm have to run away because otherwise the plot won't work. OK, mm-hmm. they'll run away. Why would they run away? Oh, who knows? They just feel they should, you know, things like that. But <laughs> you need to have those really great lines mm-hmm. to carry the play. Mm-hmm. And if they're underplayed too much, you you really feel like you're missing something. Well, and I feel like a lot of this actually contributes to why it is such a popular play to read in high school mm-hmm. hmm. because, I mean, it is short, so it's yep. easier for students to commit to the entire thing. But also, it is it is kind of visual, uh, not visually beautiful. It is kind of beautiful uh, you know, text, beautiful mm-hmm. to speak, yes. say mm-hmm. aloud. So even if you're not going to practice it and put it on, if you're just reading it in a classroom setting, it's still kind of aesthetically pleasurable in a way that some other plays would not be because they're going to require kind of more dramatic interpretation. Yeah. And and that, as I say, I think that's a big part of why I have such affection for it is, you know, I did it in high school with a good teacher, but what we spend a lot of time doing was reading it out and practicing and doing monologues. And I love the sound of it. I love the words. You don't have to be a great, I mean, you have to be a great actor to make it great. Sure. But you don't have to be a great actor to get the speeches across because they kind of fall naturally into your mouth much more easily than some of the ones even in Hamlet, for instance, has wonderful, wonderful language too, but it's harder. You have to figure out what you're saying. I think in more of the speeches you have, because they're sort of philosophical and stuff and you have to sort of understand what's going on so that you can then read them with Macbeth. You can just read it and it just, you don't have to actually fully understand it for it to sound good. I don't think. And I found that was really missing in this rendition of it and then as you say then you i mean i turned to you at one point and said what the hell is lady macbeth's deal like she's <laughs> urging him on and then suddenly she's like turns around and is all oh no i'm so upset and you suddenly realize i don't know if they'd cut out some scenes because we'll come to that in a, maybe in a moment but as you say her motivation suddenly seems like transparent like there's nothing there we don't know why she's so hell-bent on having him kill Duncan and then we don't know why she's so upset that he has 
all of her character lies in those wonderful speeches of hers. And she gave them, but I'm not saying she did a bad job, just that the way it was played was so um, non-declaimed that you missed a lot of it, or I did. And as light as the motivation can be in the play sometimes, like I feel mm-hmm. like it's basically absent in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading a review of Fassbender's performance, which said that it was one of the few compelling Macbeths because Macbeth is a hard role to perform. He goes from complexity to simplicity. But Mac, but Fassbender's Macbeth was a man who was dead before we even met him. Yeah, no, I, I agree in that you don't I didn't feel any passion in him at the beginning. You didn't sort of have him at the beginning thinking, now, this is a man of ambition. You know, this is a man who wants something. But I, I guess in that way, this is a very contemporary interpretation of the character because how many movies or other narratives have come out in the past 10, 15, 20 years that are about kind of these these soulless characters mm-hmm. trying to figure out. I mean, it, 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 it's a, your standard existential narrative yeah. of what is the point of living? I, you know, uh, going through the motions and being and being. Uh, doom filled before you even start the motions because what does it all matter anyway? Everything from Fight Club to Toy Story 3, you know? And there is an element, I think, of that really in the text Mm -hmm. of the play because you you do get the sense that uh, he he keeps going forward because of the momentum more Mm -hmm. than the ambition, right? Mm -hmm. He's already gone this far. So he may as well just keep going further. And then once you get rather onto the than bank- really wanting it, all yeah. That once much. you get onto murdering Banquo and stuff, it's just a matter of survival because I've done the first thing. I have to do that. You know, what's the point of having done this horrible crime if I don't tidy up after the horrible crime? The, I might as well do the next thing. What's that line? And I'm so steeped in blood. Mm-hmm. It's uh, oh, yeah. I don't remember the line, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's it's easy. It's just as easy to to keep going forward than to as turn to back. back. And and also that. Not, um, I just read that, I was just rereading it, and it was that line when talking about Banquo, that if he uh, doesn't kill him, then he's lost the whole point of killing yeah. Duncan, yeah. right? If he... Yeah. It's it sunk cost fallacy, basically. <laughs> basically. <laughs> Economics yeah. meets Shakespeare. I mean, I'm sure that that's actually a fairly ripe area for discussion that's been done before. To be, yeah. To be thus is nothing, but to be safely thus is the point. Yeah. One thing that was incredibly uh, persistent in this movie was just kind of the detached brutality of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, movies can be brutal in myriad ways, and Ron was brutal in its own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was brutal in its kind of calculated and emotionless mm-hmm. yeah. de- depiction of the violence and killing that was happening and one thing that i actually really liked is a lot of the kind of tertiary roles were very purposefully populated with like 17 year old boys mm-hmm. um, all the boys dying on the battlefield yeah no those, yes. that was good that was and, good and, but then you'd have these like kind of impossibly slow motion scenes mm-hmm. where somebody's throat was being slit while mm-hmm. you know they were grind- grimacing with agony and then um of course the kind of important murder scene that happens you know mm-hmm. surprise surprise uh was very very brutal in its intimacy but also kind of the way that it was emotionally detached yeah a sort of um not a split personality exactly but as if part of him is raging and fearful and the other part of him doesn't even care what he's doing at yes. the same time and the camera feels both those things and that was a lot of stabbing like oh my god there was so much stabbing. so much stabbing and it doesn't make any sense um from the point of view of actual logic i think one of my problems with the movie was it, that that very modernness of it so it it was as you say it wasn't a modern setting it was very um authentic setting i suppose mm-hmm. in a sense right it was very uh, geographically um in the right place with the it was shot on location it was everybody was dressed like scottish medieval peasants art historically it was a bit of a mess yeah but i'll, but I'll you, let that slide yeah no i mean i'm not saying it was perfect but it was certainly trying it wasn't it wasn't uh elizabethan it was aiming for scottish medieval rather than aiming for elizabethan put it that way 
I would say. Uh, they did film in England as compared to Scotland. Yeah. Well, not exclusively, but they did some interiors in England as compared mm-hmm. to Scotland. And oh, interiors. I noticed, but I also have a master's screen in architecture history, so I'm <laughs> really picky when it comes to yeah. these things. No, fair enough. But, uh, but at the same time as they were sort of doing it authentically in that sense, and, and a lot of the line readings and a lot of the, you know, they were trying to do it very naturalistic, so, or parts of it were very naturalistic to the extent that um, I don't know if this is just me as a sort of I like my traditional Shakespeare but to the extent that as I say that I, I think the line readings were missed on a lot of the, the points of the lines these great rhythms and mm. sounds and you know assonances and all of these things were kind of lost because they were doing such naturalistic readings that they were losing the poetry you know when it was like the <laughs> felt like the whole movie was bent hell-bent on never rhyming <laughs> on like never acknowledging the rhymes in that Shakespeare ever put in uh, and I'll come back to that with the whole witches thing but uh, you know either cutting out the scenes that had rhyming poetry in it or just reading in such a way that you were not going to notice the rhyme god damn it mm. and you know that's part of the poetry so that in other words that they were trying very hard to read it like it wasn't poetry and i understand that from a naturalistic point of view but at the same time uh you know as we say it loses all all this language and then um at the same time so much of it was very stylized and didn't make naturalistic sense like the stabbing of duncan it was just way crazy and a very stylized scene and uh, the scene in the banquet, too, with Banquo's ghost in the banquet hall, where Macbeth is standing there talking to the murderer and everyone can hear him clearly as he says, hey, did you kill Banquo? Oh, I'm glad you did. You know, and, and all the stuff that's an aside in the mm-hmm. play that in the play you can imagine, OK, there's a big feast going on. Nobody can really they can see he's acting weird, but they can't hear what he's saying to the murderer. But they did it in this very stylized way so that it there was no possibility that he was hiding anything. And so I found a a weird combination of very naturalistic, but in other ways you had to either suspend disbelief or I I don't know. I just, I I found it um, jarring to go back and forth between these quite naturalistic scenes and readings of lines. And then these very stylized, formalized um, filmed scenes as well. Yeah. Um, any, any more issues on it? Like specifically as it's being presented in the movie or shall we kind of segue a little bit? I don't know. Did you have any, (laughs) I will say there was a lot, uh, did, did you notice the, um, possibly symbolic color at the end? (laughs) (laughs) We were laughing at the, at the end credits with the red hue over all of it. Oh yeah. (laughs) So I, I thought that was a brilliant way of dealing with the, the forest yes coming to the the forest coming, coming to, to uh, densening yes but i just it, it but, just seemed uh, very heavy-handed it was like hmm, it's almost like it's all ended up covered in blood hmm. <laughs> speaking of the the bright red at the end because the then it just is Macbeth and bright red text uh the movie starts with a stylized battle scene and then mm-hmm. we get the weird sisters mm-hmm. and then we get almost like a star wars style crawl like explaining the history yes, yeah. yeah the background of the situation yes <laughs> Which I found interesting. Mm-hmm. Particularly the font choice reminded me of like spaghetti westerns. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did feel like there were sort of elements of several different, but of course that's also very modern and of this time to have elements of different conventions and genres butting up against them and them, themselves in the movie uh, to have different things. Yeah. And I mean, it was an incredibly beautiful movie. Visually. Yeah. I, it, I, I think that's one of the strongest things about the production for me was just um, the the color palettes and and and. I thought it was very gray, personally. But well, it was. I think they. That I mean, was intentionally. Intentionally so, but... to get the contrast with with the end. Yeah. Um, but no, there were lovely shots, and and there was beautiful. I mean, those interiors for all, whether they're anachronistic or not, some of them were quite gorgeous and uh, striking, and mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I think my problem with the interiors, though, is that we're presented alternately kind of this very... Peasant halls and barely, um, hardly even stone-built 
cottages. Yeah, the the insides were the interiors were were not believable to the exteriors. exteriors. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and then you go um, to Schoon and it's like cathedrals. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even the interior of Duncan's tent didn't mm. match the exterior of Duncan's tent. <laughs> you know, it was this highly elaborate, mm. rich um, interior with gold and things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I appreciated the Duncan's tent was still just presented as a tent. Mm-hmm. Because the interior, like, during the coronation and everything was just, it was too pristine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, no, that, I, I agree. That that was not in keeping with uh, the sort of grime of the earlier parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I understand in line with movies like The Fall, where that comes in. But for me personally, that was something that really pulled me out. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of pulled me out, I, I previously kind of referenced a couple of quotes that I was like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten that that was Macbeth because I've heard it so frequently elsewhere. We did that um, several times too. <laughs> <laughs> so I noted those. Uh, the first one was who could refrain that had a heart to love and in that heart courage to make love known, mm-hmm. which I, <laughs> my immediate association with that quote is from 10 things I hate about you. Oh, where right. it's used yes. horribly out of context because Michael is using it to flirt with Mandela. Right, hmm. right. <laughs> because I'll admit to uh, having seen Ten Things far many more times than any version <laughs> of that. Well, and I, you know, you said you hadn't seen it on stage. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've seen it on stage. I, I mean, I've seen very little Shakespeare on stage. Yeah, I, I've seen only I can't a few things. Remember specifically seeing it on stage, but I have seen other films. I've seen other films of it, though not a ton of them. Um, probably my strongest association with it is with Slings and Arrows. Right. Um, yes. Uh, parts of that uh, just recently. I don't. Did they even do a version of Macbeth in one of those? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. yeah, they did. Yeah. The um, second. But uh, always season. my strongest association with Shakespeare is reading it on the page, and I'm just a weirdo that way. So <laughs> it doesn't bother <laughs> me that I haven't seen it on stage because I, I'm quite happy to have just read it. The other thing oh. I wanted to say about the movie as a movie, what that we noticed was the. Um, it's not that it's not in the play, but the the sex scene on the altar. I just just wanted to flag that. Oh, the like weird rapiness of it. Well, no, just that they were having sex on an altar while talking it wasn't rapey. about. She 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 was she led him on seducing him. <laughs> she she started it, but oh yeah, it wasn't rapey. But there was this very weird power dynamic being exercised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and but it was just. I mean, it's. It's a perfectly reasonable choice. I'm not saying it's wrong, but that was a very modern choice too. I felt it was very Game of Thrones. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was like, oh, this is a movie all about murder and you know uh, horrible crimes committed. What else can we add to just to point out that up. these are bad people yeah. and to make this like uh, just that much over the top? Oh, I know. We could have them having sex while they plan a murder. Oh, I know. Let's make sure they do it in a chapel. <laughs> On the altar. Oh, yeah, that'll be good. And let's make sure they don't look like they're actually having any fun while they do it. Because sex that actually is fun, that's not allowed in movies and TV shows anymore. It has to be all about violence and power. Kurosawa did the same thing with Lady Kaida. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. And it was was horrifying there, too. (laughs) I think it was a little more effective in Ron, but I think everything was a little more effective in Ron. Yeah. I might be a bit of an apologist by this point. Well, it was more passionate in Ron. And I think that was the part that felt very modern about that scene in Macbeth was that they were having sex, but did either of them look like they were particularly excited about it? No. Or yeah. passionate or doing so because they really wanted to? Like, I know we're in the middle of planning a murder, but oh my God, I can't keep my hands off your body. No, it was like... Oh, um, I know how I'll keep uh, this conversation going. How would I undo your pants? Like, <laughs> now, now this sounds and do like this ne- duty, you know? I don't know. Now this sounds like a New York Times editorial on how the millennial hookup culture is ruining like romance. Because <laughs> <laughs> those articles yeah. come out like every two weeks. Yeah, well, that's sort of. I mean, that's sort of what I mean. Uh, it is a. It's a feature of the way sex is being treated in certain kinds of media at the moment. So it seemed of a key, in keeping with that. Let's put it that way. Yes. Um, the other line I wanted to highlight uh, is tomorrow and tomorrow creeps oh, yeah. in this petty pace from day to day, uh, which is featured in 
the Broadway like mega hit Hamilton. Mm. Uh, Hamilton being, of course, of Scottish descent. At one point, he says, my dearest Angelica, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. I trust you'll understand the reference to another Scottish tragedy without my having to name the play. Right. So that's very clearly, obviously, a reference to Macbeth. Mm-hmm. But I was, but by this point in the movie, I was a little checked out just because. Mm-hmm. I wasn't engaging. I, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And then I heard that and I perked up again. I was like, oh, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. This might be us. We were doing things like listen the the line uh, "What's done is done," and the uh, in other words, we were hearing more the lines that are part of everyday speech yeah. that you forget or don't know are Shakespearean. It doesn't mean that he invented them necessarily. "What's done is done" may have come around before, but we say it because it's in Macbeth. We had a little mini unit on what Shakespeare introduced to English, mm-hmm. and in this unit, my teacher highlighted. You know, I've always thought the past participle of highlighted should be high lit. I don't <laughs> understand why we take <laughs> yep. a regular and make it regular. Anyway, uh, he highlighted the fact that a lot of Shakespeareanisms did not become common. And my favorite one is from Macbeth, and it is the multitudinous seas incarnadine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was happy to see that that line survived. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I actually, it, my, that that's one of the lines I love that, that just, it's so sonorous and beautiful uh, that this one hand of mine could the multitude of seas incarnadine or incarnadine I don't know which one it is because nobody says that word <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well an out damn spot and things like that of yeah. course there are, I mean there's there's many many famous lines but it was more the uh, the phrases that are now just parts of speech yeah, rather that than are just, quotes yeah. that kind of caught my ear a few times you just forget when you're not listening to Shakespeare how much of our language is is taken from it. Yeah. And I mean, the same is true. I have so many languages and their... Uh, their foundational literature. Exactly. Italian, Dante. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even just literature, though. I mean, look at rock and roll and the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, certain, the, the cultural uh, touchstones give us so much language. Do we want to talk then about it as... Uh, adaptation of the play because i have thoughts with a capital t on that too (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i feel like i've mostly said my piece Mm -hmm. with it as an adaptation of of macbeth and that it really kind of highlights the automatic nature of so much of the play yeah for the plot Mm -hmm. yes Mm -hmm. my big well the thing i wanted to point out was the um for such a short play how much they cut out how mm-hmm. many many mm-hmm. many scenes are not in there mm-hmm. and my point about them avoiding rhymes like the plague one major way in which they did that was they avoided they cut most of the witches speeches now part of that what they cut no no you're gonna tell the... me is they got, that they cut <laughs> the, the parts problems. that are textually um Spurious. problematic no yes. we've had this conversation already no <laughs> it's not just that I mean, they, they cut more cut than those. that they cut sure they cut the hecate speeches which are text- textually considered not to be actually yeah. Yeah. but they cut i mean john what's the most famous thing that the witches in macbeth say when shall we three okay what's the second most famous thing <laughs> which is the double guessing. double toil and trouble, trouble cauldron <laughs> burn and cauldron <laughs> bubble well and the thing is although i think <laughs> most scholars accept that as being genuine shakespeare there was a trend earlier on probably about a hundred years ago of wanting to remove even more of the witches stuff mm-hmm. as being non-shakespearean because the witches were too witchy. Yeah, I get that. But they're also fabulous. Oh, yeah. I mean, but I'm, no, and, and, and I mean, you can you you're making a movie. You just choose what you're going to yeah. take out. It's totally their choice. But uh, my point is, those are the speeches, among other things, where the play with language yeah. is really for to the forefront. I mean, what is great about those speeches is how um joyous they are in a way i mean they're evil but they're joyous in their use of language and they're filled with rhyme and they're very clearly poetry there's no prosing those up you cannot read those speeches and and pretend that they're natural 
the the caveat with something as as established and famous as Shakespeare is that there's been there there have been so many cultural references to it mm-hmm. that some of them are ruined by nature of their recognition. Uh, and for me, Double Double Toil and Trouble is because I grew up watching the Olsen twins like murder mystery movies and stuff like that, <laughs> and mm-hmm. they had one called Double Double Toil and Trouble. And no matter how hard I try to suppress that, you would just find I will it never funny. not be able to find that funny. Well, okay. I mean, I still think it's great. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a bad line, but I'm saying no. But I mean, and, and it's not it's just too it's not cartoony just, now is the problem. It's yes, like cartoon exactly. witch. Well, it's the yeah. It's too. What you're, what you're saying is it's a victim of its success. Yes. As being so yes. famous, it has caused. It's the same way that uh, Sherlock Holmes seems cliched. Yeah. Because everybody's yeah. like, oh my god, that's so cliched when he's the one who in, yeah. introduced it. I will grant you that, but. And given the style of production the that they were aiming for. Well, and th- that's what I mean. I mean, they did that. It was in and keeping with that. the choices that they were making. It was. So. And I just don't like those choices. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I, as I say, I it's totally that. their choice. Yeah. But I'm just saying, and that's that's one of the things. And it's not just those ones. I mean, yes, okay, that's the most famous scene, and they take that up. But there's other scenes with the... Uh, the witches turn up a lot more. I mean... They turned up several times in this movie, but they hardly ever spoke. They were this silent they presence were this all the visual time. Yeah, they haunting. also at certain times kind of just felt like apparitions. Mm-hmm. Mm. As if you're not even sure he's really said it. But there's even the, the beginning um, where hast thou been, sister, killing swine, sister, where thou. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, that's, I'll that's do one and of, I'll do and I'll do. That's one of the lines that people have argued removing. Um, as being, you know, too pedestrian, witchy, and not weird sister-y I, enough. I don't think people understand Shakespeare. The man was <laughs> writing for the stage so that you'd be entertained. Why would you not want witches saying... Uh, well, it's a question of what you actually And in a sieve, I'll do the sail, and as. like a rat without a tail, I'll do, and I'll do, and I'll do. <laughs> I mean, how can you not want that in your but play? It, it's a question of, of what you really <laughs> take their role in the play to be and what you really take them to be. Um, are they witches? I mean, they're not really directly referred to as witches in any of the dialogue of the play. Except for the fact that they spend all their time talking about how they're making potions and casting spells. Well, in, in unless you cut out all the bits where spells. they make yeah. potions and cut. Cast but I mean, spells. they're never referred to as witches by name. Dinner at our house is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I will say actually, mm-hmm. with regards to this um, hyper witchification, I don't know what I, how, mm-hmm. how I want to refer to it. That was a huge problem that bothered me, even when I was like ten and eleven in reading Harry Potter. Oh, is yeah. that I, I felt like the witchy aspects of certain things really over fetishized for no apparent reason. Because if you were a witch or a wizard living in this world of magic, why would you go out of your way to fetishize magic when it would be something that would be so normal to you? Yeah, why would it end up with all these sort of rituals or... Uh, and Well, in the Harry Potter thing, it's it's why did they stick with... Why Middle Ages? Why is some stuff Middle Ages and other stuff not Middle Ages? Like, why do you have to have a witch's hat that happens to be from a certain period just because that's our popular conception of witches. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for me, it kind of goes in that same line of, I understand that this is appealing to and part of this cultural heritage Mm -hmm. of, of what we understand witches to canonically be. But at the same time, like I said, double, double toil and trouble in reference in over-referencing that it draws me uh, out of the. All right, fine. You guys can be, naturalistic if you want i well, miss the witches <laughs> i mean and the the other element is that the the witchcraft reflects more shakespeare's time than macbeth's time yeah no that's true the the, the witches in their witchiness are, are renaissance, an anachronism are, are, are elizabethan mm-hmm. not not shakespearean but i mean they left in lines about canons too so there you go <laughs> uh and I will say that they left out the line that Banquo says to the witches that I think was very important. You should be women, and yet your beards forbid me to interpret that you are so. <laughs> when he first sees the witches. <laughs> I think they should have had beards. 
I also thought it was really weird. There are four of them. Yeah, the the, the very well in the varying you. number because there were four, but then there was also a baby. Yeah, there was a baby at five. And and the baby, I mean, the whole point is in the double double toilets trouble They're speech that they didn't put in. It's, no, well, yes, that's part of it, but also they like use bits of dead bits babies of, yeah, yeah, and. Yeah stuff in their potions and yeah. so i was like well there's a baby maybe they're gonna use it in a potion and then they mm-hmm. didn't have their speech i was very sad but i think we you know i think in the way that the it was presented in the film we weren't really meant to think of them as witches we were more meant to think of them as you know the weird sisters yeah. as as sort of fates or um i guess so so the other thing though there is a lot else cut out so the witches really stood out to me because I do love those bits, but there was lots. If I was just rereading the play and I'm not going to go through all the scenes that are cut out, but there are tons of scenes cut out. Some of them are prose scenes. There's the, the porter knocking, knock, knock, knock at the door. And, and there's a whole scene uh, that's right before Duncan's discovered murdered, but there's scene after scene. Waiting, after scene. I was waiting for the porter and it didn't come. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah the Mary uh, drinking leads to three things. Uh, Drunkenness, Too comic. nose painting, and urine. And I guess uh, Michael Keaton was busy when they were shooting this <laughs> yeah, one. Exactly. I mean, that's what that scene is. It's yeah, totally a... Yeah. And I mean, again, that wouldn't be, have been in keeping. So it's, I, I noticed that it wasn't there, but I can understand why they took it out. But there's lots of other scenes. There's a whole... Um, for instance, when Banquo uh, goes riding and then Shakespeare, um, Macbeth meets with the murderers, the three murder the well this he meets with two murderers and a third murderer comes along later it's slightly confusing but when he meets with the two, two murderers he has a long conversation with them in which he lays out the reasons that banquo needs to be killed enlists them as willing participants in killing banquo because of the various ways in which he's purportedly a threat to the kingdom and then says okay now you go kill him and look and this is why we have to kill fleonos too it's a big long he justifies himself he gets them on his side they're sort of shown to be complicit in it they're not just following orders they're like yes we understand the bank one needs to be killed and then he finally sends them off it's like five pages in my edition and in the movie he's just he we get only the last i don't know five lines of that where mm-hmm. he just says all right here's your deed go and catch him up make sure you kill the boy too that's it so it's not just the witches. There's big chunks. And that's, you know, that's an important sort of simplification, motivation. I guess, simplification, I uh, It's just interesting, as you say, it is the mm-hmm. shortest movie, the shortest of the plays. And yeah. yet they've cut a lot mm-hmm. of dialogue out, mm-hmm. a lot of lines. And there are a bunch of, uh, some of them are some of the scenes that are better known. Uh, there are some well-known bits that are cut out. And then the ones that are left in, I felt like it was almost like they intentionally hurried past the most famous lines. And maybe that's what you were saying, John, about how the bits that are most well-known kind of catch you and throw you out of the play. And maybe they were trying to avoid that by not having you hear the, ooh, that's the Macbeth bit. Yeah. And, and you know, I understand that. But on this, on the other hand, so all of the lines that you know, the, there goes the bell, Duncan. Hear it, hear it not. Tis the knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell, right before he goes in to kill him. The line was there. I'm pretty sure it was actually in it. I'd have to watch again to be sure, because the speech, which is the is this a digressy be put for me speech, was there. But no emphasis given to it. No like. You know, so that, you, as I say, you couldn't hear the rhyme. Mm. You couldn't hear the rhyme. You couldn't hear the poetry. So that kind of capping emotional moment of the scene, you don't get. And there's a lot of moving around of scenes, too. There was a lot. I know that's very common when you do Shakespeare, but a lot of moving, a lot of moving of half scenes, moving of bits of dialogue here, there, and everywhere. Like, one of the things that really stood out to me and that I thought was interesting was uh, when Malcolm comes in as Macbeth is murdering Duncan. The son, Duncan's son comes in in the middle of the murder scene or just after he's killed him. And he says, what's this? And he says, you know, very wellspring of your li- life's cut off, which is a speech that he does say to Donald Bain, actually, and Malcolm when, when they discover Duncan dead the next morning. But basically, instead of having it where Donald Bain and Malcolm are like, I 
kind of think something is screwy here. Probably somebody, maybe Macbeth killed him. Let's run away to Ireland and England and save ourselves. Instead of that, you get Malcolm walking in on him, killing him. And then Macbeth being like, oh, somehow your father is dead. Don't know how that <laughs> happened as I stand here covered in blood holding a knife. But, you know, it's bad for you. And then Malcolm runs away. And it's like, why would he do that? Why wouldn't he? Anyway, it didn't seem it was sort of bizarre and unmotivated. And that was a moving of a piece of dialogue. They didn't have to do that because the dialogue has it in a much more natural place where Macbeth is pretending to be shocked by Duncan's death with everybody else. And says, you know, like, so they moved something out of the place that it was in the play into a place where it was much harder to sort of understand or justify and I wonder, there's no way really to know this without speaking to the screenwriter. So if you're listening, <laughs> please let us know. Um, you know, to what extent were these changes made to facilitate this, the movie they wanted to make? And to what extent were they made to facilitate people who aren't familiar with the play? Mm -hmm. Kind of watching this. Maybe. Because I, I, I don't know. I, in watching the movie, even though I'm familiar with the play, I still found it very confusing. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the moments that I found very confusing because I was doubting myself. I was like, wait, did this happen? Or am I misremembering the play? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Though. Do you think that would actually make it easier to understand if you didn't know the play going in? Well, I suppose it's it's hard. You have to. The, what's the justification for them fleeing? Because it just makes them look guilty. Right. Well, they do have a little conversation, though, which is cut out yeah, in no. which they say, Oh, this looks bad. I'm not sure about this. You know, I don't know what's happening and I don't think we have the strength to stand against it. If we go in and listen to them, they'll all pretend to be sad, but we won't be able to tell who's really really feel sad and who isn't. Maybe they felt that was I'll something I'll go to Ireland, to you go to England. Yeah, if we split up, we'll be safer that way. Hmm. All right, well, we'll we'll reconvene later. You know, actually it's, it it was it's just pure plot exposition essentially mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they cut that out. In Maybe fact, they did felt... they even have Donald Bain? Did they have the second son? The second son. Did Duncan have two sons? I don't recall either, no. which is very telling. Yeah. <laughs> if there was a second son, we were never... I don't think we were. I, no. I think we only saw Malcolm. And again, maybe that simplification yeah. just, you know, reduce it down to one son. Then you have to get rid of that conversation. How else do you mm -hmm. then motivate the fleeing? Yeah. No, I can see I can see a whole okay. series of, of There's decisions a chain reaction being made. There. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean... I'll, Every movie makes a decision about cutting stuff out. We talked about this with Much Ado, uh, how, you know, yeah. on a line-by-line -line basis, half a line here, half a line yeah. there was cut out. It wasn't so much whole scenes that happened occasionally, but it was more individual lines. Here it's more whole scenes and then rearrangements of lines. Though they did rearrange order stuff of scenes in, as in well. Much Ado, but much only Ado. really one scene, whereas here it's all mm. over the place. The scenes are, are shifted and, and half bits of scenes are shifted all over the place. But I, I don't, that doesn't yeah, there's no, bother me There's no me credit for Donald Bain. Right. So, yeah, I don't think he was in it. I don't, I, I, that doesn't bother me in itself. I think that's a thing you do mm -hmm. when you film Shakespeare because, but I, I just missed the language. And it's not that I wanted them to all stand stage front and declaim in, you know, Stratford-upon-Avon kind of voices. But I kind of felt like the actors that they had, the quality of the actors that they had was lost because it's really hard to act at a whisper. Like, it's hard to emote. Mm. And they weren't given a... Maybe this is just because that's what modern film is like, but they didn't weren't given a range of emotions. It felt like they all had the same emotion all the way through. You know what it reminded me of? Have you ever seen There Will Be Blood? No. no. It reminded me of There Will Be Blood. The music was incredibly similar. Oh, yeah. um, but also, my big problem with that movie, and it was very, very critically lauded, but my big problem with that movie was the fact that the characters are kind of static, and at the end, they're just more intense versions of themselves from the beginning. Hmm. Right. So, you know, that being an incredibly influential film from 2007, like, this kind of very much so falls within that school of filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I felt they were quite one note. Like I felt like Macbeth really was sort of the same all the way through, 
I didn't feel like he changed. It, Mad Macbeth was not very different from sane Macbeth at the beginning because in that battle scene and in this in the meeting with the witches, he seemed kind of mad too. Like, right at the beginning, he seemed kind of... You didn't know what he was going to do and you weren't sure of his motivation. And he just kind of stayed the same way all the way through. And Lady Macbeth was kind of... You know, was intense at the beginning and then she was intense at the end and we only had the one speech in which she suddenly seemed unhappy about things and then she was dead so i didn't i didn't feel like anybody changed and and i and or that they had any range of emotions and and i feel like those actors are probably capable of quite a big range of emotions and really understanding the words that they're saying but it didn't come across that way I don't know. I just, I, we watched it over two nights. We almost never get through a whole movie in one night. And uh, we watched the second part out of, I felt it was watching it out of duty. <laughs> Not because yeah. I wanted to watch the rest of it. Yeah. That was um, my feeling. And maybe it's going to be a different experience when you watch it in theaters. I mean, yeah. certainly it's going to be a different experience when you watch it in theaters because your attention is so much more focused in mind too. I, try not to let myself be distracted when I'm watching a movie at home, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's just inevitable. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, there just wasn't that hook yeah. for me. Mm. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I say, you know, what I love about Shakespeare is the language. When it's a, a based on Shakespeare, I don't miss the language. Like, I didn't miss, you know, in 10 things, and, and that wasn't what bothered me about She's the Man or anything, the fact that they didn't have the language of Shakespeare, because obviously that would be ridiculous in a modern context. I don't miss it if it's gone entirely. Then I can mm -hmm. focus on the clevernesses of the characterization and the plot and the, the themes and the way those things... That's fine. But when it is the actual... Text. Text. Then I care about the text. And I really miss it if I can't if I can't get it out of it. And, you know, I, I just can't help comparing this to Much Ado and to Henry V, which we will make you watch with Branagh, where it's, I mean, in Much Ado, it felt not naturalistic in the same way, but it's not, you know, they talk like they were talking. They didn't sound like they were standing on a stage and declaiming to you. But you didn't miss a word. You heard everything. Every line was there. The puns, the rhythms they were there at the same time as it sounded like sort of like normal people talking and i just didn't feel that here mm -hmm. well i feel like that mostly wraps up what we have to say <laughs> yeah yeah it was an interesting play it's not a movie I, I i never feel sad for having watched these i'm always glad to have seen them but i don't think it was a great version of macbeth no. I, I just don't I, yeah. I just don't think so. All right, and with that, moving on to our next film. Mm -hmm. Curious that you mentioned Henry V. Yes. <laughs> because my selection for next episode is based on Henry the Fourth, part one and two, as well as Henry the Fifth. My own private Idaho by Gus Van Sant, oh. starring River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. Okay. All right. Okay. That's it's from 1991, mm -hmm. so it's Keanu before he ruined uh, <laughs> Much Ado. I don't really blame that on him, mostly. I blame it on yeah. acting, uh, directing choices, actually. But yeah, uh, no, well, that's good because we haven't seen that. No. And no. it'll be a nice light change. Uh, well, sort of. I don't know that it's going to be light. Light. It's not light in the same way. I feel like anything's light compared to Ron, though. Well, okay, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and many things might be light compared to this Macbeth, too. <laughs> but, okay. That, that sounds, sounds good. That's great. Yeah. We'll... yeah. I, I would tell you more about the movie, but I think the less you know, the better your experience is going to be. So. Yeah, no, I don't know it. So, I mean, I've, I've certainly heard about it, but I don't, I don't know details about it. So I'll leave it at that and we'll watch it. I always enjoy watching movies, so I don't know what's going to happen. It's a very difficult thing to do these days, but <laughs> it really is, and it's such a pleasure. Mm -hmm. And of course, it doesn't isn't helped by the fact that 
I haven't seen most movies, so movies that have been out for 20 years I may still not have seen, and that's really asking a lot of the world to keep me spoiler-free on those ones. <laughs> that, well, And that's a problem we've been having at this point in Talking Tolkien, and I'm sure you've heard this a yes. little bit, is that I want to talk about things that are happening in the future so that I can <laughs> use that to talk about the plot structure that Tolkien is employing. Mm -hmm. But Chase has only seen the movies, which gives away some things. It's like, do I spoil a book that's 60 years old or do I, you know? <laughs> I, so. know. I know. I know. I'm, I'm listening to you guys very carefully, not mentioning. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if Chase listens to this, but not mentioning uh, the substantial differences with the ending of Lord of the Rings um, from the movie to the book. I'm, you know, as you're very carefully not saying things about what happens to certain wizards and where they go and things like that, for instance. <laughs> Are you referring to the flowering of the fire? <laughs> the lowering of the lyre? Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff. Yeah, and uh, it, it's entertaining me because I know exactly why you're trying very hard not to mention it because it's not in the movies, uh, but uh, but why you want so badly to to foreshadow some of those sorts of things yeah well we digress <laughs> but if you're if you're interested in listening to discussions about tolkien please check out talking tolkien <laughs> for sure it's it's entertaining me now we should mention before we go one of the reasons we chose to do Macbeth this month well one of the reasons we chose to do a straight version of a play this month one of the better known ones it's the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. And as it happens, the something 400th and something anniversary of his birth, because he was born and died on the same, same day. day. Uh, uh, April 23rd, I think. I think. I thought he died on the 23rd, but his birth was attributed to the 26th. It's not clear because all they have is his uh, christening. Yeah, christening they records, sort of work yeah. backwards from his christening and they figure it could have been anyways yeah. uh, the but same certainly his death was the death. 23rd yeah. yeah so the 23rd of april is the 400th anniversary of shakespeare's death so we thought we would make sure we'd done an actual shakespeare play rather than just a based on for this month so if you're listening to this around that date take a moment to think about how 400 years after he died I'm still arguing about whether or not the witch's speeches <laughs> should be in there. <laughs> and, and how what is done is done. Indeed. <laughs> and I'll be having a video coming out around that time as well to mark the occasion that uh, also touches on Macbeth. Mm -hmm. And a certain word that is featured in uh, some of the bits that were cut out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to, to mention that before we finish. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X. 